What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Comet ML Machine Learning Open Office Hours, powered by the Artist Data Science. Super excited to have all of you guys here today. Uh, shout out to everybody in the room. Austin, what's going on? Christoph, Parath, Antti, Amos. Hey, if you guys joining in on LinkedIn or if you're joining in on YouTube, Twitch, wherever you may be joining in from, feel free to go ahead and let us know if you have any questions. We'll be taking questions um, for the next hour or so, or you know, maybe even longer, depending how, how fun the conversation gets. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune into the um, episode I released on the Arts of Data Science podcast earlier this weekend on Friday, actually. I uh, spoke to Jacqueline Wales, who talked about her book, The Fearless Factor. I felt like it was a pretty personal conversation. I think I was coming to her with a lot of stuff that I was dealing with at that time. I, I interviewed her back in probably February. And during that time, man, I was going through some severe, like kind of burnout issues. I was, I was going through some stuff and, uh, and she was there just talking, talking me through it. Uh, so it was a really, really good episode. You know, I enjoyed speaking to her and I enjoyed getting some of her tips. We touched on a lot of different topics, man. We talked about, you know, if you're struggling to follow through, struggling with follow, follow through and consistency. How do you overcome that? Um, we talked about, systems and, and why systems are better than goals. We talked about self-awareness. Um, you know, we talked about why you should stay open and curious and out of judgment. Talked about four different characteristics of self-awareness as well. Um, proven to ourselves that we're good enough. It was, it was a good episode, man. Like I really enjoyed speaking with her. So hopefully you get a chance to check that out. Also shout out to uh to Matt Bratton. Matt Bratton, if you guys uh, see him on if you guys are joining in on LinkedIn, tag Matt Bratton right there in the comment. He sent me this uh, awesome shirt. Uh, so for those of you listening on the podcast, it's a select from wear shirt. Uh, so he sent this to me. Um, just, I don't know where, man. I appreciate you sending that to me, uh, Matt. Really, really, uh, really, really enjoying this shirt. Um, yeah, man. So we'll go ahead and start taking questions. If you guys have questions, go ahead, put them right there into the chat. Um, go ahead and put them into the comment section, wherever it is that you're watching from. I'm keeping a good eye on uh, on all that stuff. Um, shout out to uh, to Janir, who's joining us from Brazil on LinkedIn. Happy to have you here. Um, so let's go ahead and get warmed up with the question. Actually, I've got a question that uh, that came in through um, through email, uh, and it's a question from um, one of our community members who uh, uh, whose name is three six six two collective uh, and. I uh, don't see an actual name on the email, but they're saying, uh, Harpreet, I see you get a lot of advice from all the people you interview in your podcast. Do you have a framework for taking in and implementing the advice you get? I thought that was a really good question, and I wish I had a really good answer for that, uh, but I don't. I don't really know that I, I don't think that I have a framework for um, from implementing the advice that I get, unfortunately. What I try to do is try to just, you know internalize it, let it sink in and connect to other ideas I have in my head. Um, and that's not the most efficient way. Like, honestly, like I've been on this like kind of journey of this uh, personal growth and development and just trying to become better only in the last three years or so. And my process up until then has just been literally highlighting pages in my book. It's been flagging my book with, uh, with notes or just writing in the book. And it's gone to a uh, you know, point where I've reached a critical mass of, of books. Like I've got a ton of books with, with a ton of flags in them, but none of them are organized or systematized, or I have no real way to really interestingly connect ideas to, um, to each other. Um, it's all having to happen in my brain, which isn't the best way to do it. Uh, so I've been reading this book recently, just finished it. It's called uh, How to Take Smart Notes. Um, I think I might've been talking about this earlier before. Um, 
and uh, probably about a month or so ago, I've been I've been reading this for a while and just really digesting it. And uh, what this book is based on, it's uh, this method that's called a Zettelkasten method, and it's by um, it's invented by a professor. I think it is in Germany. Uh, last name I think is Lumen, and he is a professor of sociology. And um, it's been really, really helpful for me recently. And I'm going to be going, you know, over the course of the next several months, going back over it through some of the books that I've read and taking those notes from the highlighted sections, from the flag sections, and, and really implementing them in a Zettel Kasten. So, what that is, is, you know, I'll start by, uh, I've recently started by taking you know, liter- fleeting notes and, and literature notes. And um, then from there, I'll move them onto a little, uh, a note card like this. I've got a five by eight note card and then I start writing on a five by eight note card. And I put it into this right here, which uh, holds all the uh, five by eight note cards. And once it's in there, my plan is to go through at least once a week and put them into a, a personal knowledge management system. And I've been exploring a few different options for that. So one of them was uh, Rome Research. One of them was uh, notion the thing about them man like they're super expensive but i recently came across something called obsidian and i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with obsidian or if you've uh, heard of obsidian but it really helps facilitate this uh, personal knowledge man- management system um, you're able to uh, add tags to your notes you're able to add bi-directional links to your notes and it's really cool because inside the uh, app itself it um you can see like a knowledge graph of all the different types of things that you uh, study and, and learn about. And all the text that you write, all the notes that you write, they're just simple markdown files. And um, they're quite, it's quite cool to use interesting um, uh, idea. I wish I would have came across this much earlier in life. Um, but then again, much earlier in life, I was kind of, um, kind of an idiot. Uh, not the case anymore. Uh, but yeah, definitely check that out. Obsidian, there's a couple of huge resources that um, that I recommend for learning about Zettelkasten and learning about how to use software like Obsidian. Uh, for Zettelkasten, there's just one, zettelkasten.de. So that's Z-E-T-T-L-E-K-A-S-T-E-N.de. And then those guys have like an entire um, a long-form blog just breaking down how to use the system. Uh, again, there's also the, note, uh, the book, How to Take Smart Notes, that'll teach how to use the Zettelkasten method. Uh, but for using Obsidian specifically, two resources that I've came across in the last couple of weeks. One has been um, linking your thinking on YouTube. So linking your thinking on YouTube has this really comprehensive, like from the ground up tutorial on how to use um, Obsidian. And then uh, Brian Jenks on YouTube, who um, who I recently connected with on on LinkedIn as well. Turns out that we're from the same part of like you know Sacramento um, as well. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so he's got, um, Brian Jenks on YouTube's got a whole mess of stuff on uh, productivity and, and using Obsidian for productivity. Um, so if you link Obsidian up with another app called Zotero, you're able to uh, really quickly and effectively start creating references and, and bibliographies and stuff like that. So I highly recommend checking those things out. Um, I, I, um, I'm brand new to it, like brand new, like, you know, two, three weeks into it. Uh, but I can already tell it's going to be a game changer uh, for me. And I'm really, really excited about going through some of these books. You know, I've got hundreds and hundreds of books, well, maybe just one or 200 books laying around with just notes and flags in them that I need to get out and into a system. 
so yeah, that's uh, that's enough warming up there. So I'm uh, I'm keeping an eye out on all the chats and all the comment section. If you guys have questions or comments, please do put them right there into the comment section. I am more than happy to uh, to take your questions, guys. Um, so yeah, so hopefully you guys uh, get a chance to look into uh, some of that software, and also hopefully you guys are following along with 21 days of uh, deep learning. That's been really fun and and really cool to do. Uh, so Betty, how's it going? Betty, I see you are uh, unmuted. So if you got a question, go ahead and let me know. All right. Betty does not have a question. Tor, how's it going? Pretty good. Can you hear awesome. me? Yeah, I can hear you. That's good. As usual, sitting outside at my local office. Sitting, sitting outside in the in the south of France, uh, suffering with a beer in hand. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a little quote-unquote heat wave going. It's about 30 degrees right now, so uh, it's rough. Yeah, man. That's, uh, that's a bit warm. Uh Cool. Well, uh, I see a question actually coming into the chat right here, actually in uh, in Zoom. So let's go ahead and get to that. Um, it is from Parath uh, saying, "Any specific course recommendation for someone transitioning from a software engineer background to a machine learning engineer background? As a follow up, what would be some great projects, particularly in NLP or healthcare, which showcase or boost our chances?" applying for an ml engineer role right so a couple of few different parts maybe i think to that question first thing i, I think um uh there's a course that makiko one of my friends makiko always recommends and that's called uh, full stack deep learning and i can go ahead and i'll pull that up right here actually on um uh on a on a on the screen here but full stack deep learning it's um it's completely free and it's uh taught by uh some professors at uh i think uc berkeley it is um and it's all about you know the engineering and deployment of machine learning projects uh so this would i think be the probably the best source for somebody who's coming from a um software engineering background trying to get into machine learning engineering this seems like a really really good um program for that so i highly recommend full stack deep learning and makiko herself has transitioned from a data scientist role to like a proper machine learning engineer role and she credits a lot of her learning and um you know success to that transition to this full stack deep learning course so highly recommend that now in terms of uh great projects that could showcase your chances for applying i mean great projects are always going to be the ones that you are absolutely most interested in right so those are the best projects i don't think there's like any one particular project that you could do that might wow a hiring manager right what what will wow a hiring manager is just your execution of the project right but how do you write your code how do you do your write-ups how do you take somebody from point a to point b um how well documented is your code right how well thought out is the work that you're doing um so that's how it answered that question like i don't, I don't know if there's a great project if, if speaking of, of nlp or, or healthcare like um you want to do an NLP project? I know I was supposed to work on this with Christoph. Maybe we could uh, touch base on this later, but we're thinking about taking all the transcripts from all the happy hours and doing something with that using NLP. Because we've got, I mean, I've got over 100 transcripts from almost 100 transcripts uh, from like 50 something uh, happy hour sessions and like almost 30 Comet ML sessions. So that's a lot of text data there that you can use to do something with, I'm sure. Um, in terms of healthcare, I don't really have um, much knowledge about the healthcare domain I, I mean i used to work in um biostatistics so that's pharmaceutical industry which i think is a little bit different from healthcare um but christoph what do you think what are some interesting projects that you've been working on for for nlp 
I wish I knew the answer for that. I, yeah. I, don't, I didn't actually work on NLP so deep yet. I used some, like I, I mentioned, I used some libraries like Spacey to, to know a lot about the linguistics or to extract some information from text data. What I used, it was, so my project idea was to get articles from NBA games because that's what I'm interested in. Interested in. I love NBA. I love basketball. So I just scraped uh, like recaps and did some project on on the data, on the text data. But like Harpreet said, it, it must be interesting for you. Yeah. And I mean, one thing you might want to do, like if you're trying to get into machine learning engineer role, is I mean, definitely. I think experiment management is going to be key for that. So check out some of the uh, projects that um, Comet has up on their website. I could pull that up or Austin, if you want to drop a link to that, that'd be great. Um, they've got a, a, we got a ton of projects there and in the near future, we'll be coming out with a lot more as well to kind of uh, teach you guys a little bit more on experiment management and model production, uh, monitoring and things like that. Um, Harith, are you still here? Was that, was that helpful? Do you have any follow-up questions to that? Uh, yes, Harpreet, it was really helpful. Thank you. And uh, yeah, one more follow-up question. Since you mentioned that you may be considering pulling up the transcripts from the happy hours and probably the office hours. So if you could like make that public or even semi-public in a way that we can access it, then yeah. that would be really helpful because that's another real area of interest, but I have hit a snag. Like even from other con content creators, I tried fetching like uh, transcripts from Spotify or like in general transcripts from podcasts. I was trying to fetch it from your, for your podcast. They should be available actually. Other. They're on my podcast. If you go to just the Arts of Data Science, go to any individual episode, you have to go to the website itself. If you go to the episode itself, um, and like I'll show you real quick. If you go to the episode like this, right? So right, this is like the most recent happy hour that was set up. And just go to a transcript, and it'll pull up a text file that's the entire transcript. Um, oh, okay. And, cool. and I have that. Yeah, I have that for every single uh, every single one. Uh, so it is a lot of manual effort. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't have any of the transcripts stashed on my on my hard drive. I have it just set up so that I can quickly no, even like, this is fine like we can yeah. probably automate this process using some scraping tool or I'm not sure if scraping is allowed but using some manner of some yeah. tool which does something similar to scraping so even this is fine I didn't even see this option on some people's podcast like only yeah. the what should I say uh, the initial intro was present in other yeah. creators podcast so that's why i had trouble but I mean, yeah that, thanks that itself, thanks a lot that itself would be a cool like full on end-to-end -end project okay like you're sourcing data so you're going to a place you're sourcing the data and then you're saving that somewhere maybe in, i don't know no sql database or something like that and then doing transformations to it getting it ready to be modeled and stuff and then finally building a model like that's complete end-to-end -end. that is uh, that would be a good good project man yeah thank you that that looks very you know, a promising thing. And at least I find it interesting because that's like literal raw data out there and you can do whatever you want with it. It's going yeah. to be very nice. Yeah. 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 I've been, I've been uh, pausing on, on that NLP project just because I've been doing this 21 days of uh, deep learning thing, but 
Um, I don't know, man. There's so much, so much that could be done. I think with those text transcripts that I have, um, it'd be interesting to see, uh, see what happens. If you do have some, if you do plan to do some sort of collaboration, I'm definitely open with respect to these transcripts, at least because you know I'm been wanting to do this kind of project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we could think of something that could uh, we could do and do some experiments on on Comet with it. I think that. Yeah, be, uh, I was gonna uh, say, I was gonna say, Harpreet, this sounds like a first, uh, maybe the seeds of a first project for your time at Comet. Sounds, yeah. sounds interesting to me. Yeah, definitely, man. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, shout out to Mark. Mark's in the building. How's it going, man? Good to see you. Uh, Mark, um, actually, uh, Bharat here was asking about um, questions. Uh, sorry, uh, a question around a project idea for healthcare. I know you've got some healthcare background. I was wondering if you might have like a uh, interesting project idea. I know you're talking about something that you uh, you guys did um, on, on, on Friday. So you want to bring that up again? Definitely. So I think one, one quick question is, are you trying to do a data analysis project or are you trying to do a machine learning project? So is this a question on off LinkedIn or someone in the group? This is uh, from, from Bharat right here. Uh, oh, hey, what's up? Hey. Hey, so it's on the second part, the machine learning part. Machine learning. Okay. So the machine learning part is a little bit harder. And I think the reason being is that like you you often let me take a step back. There's a there's a lot in healthcare. There's a lot in healthcare. And so uh for this like I think the thing you probably want to like really look into is like what area in healthcare do you want to like have impact on? Are you and the type of data? Are you looking for like tabular data or are you looking for like more unstructured data, like patient notes or computer vision? This one can clarify before I go down a rabbit hole of like advice. <laughs> okay, then um then in that case I would narrow it down to um, patient notes because I want to do in do it in NLP. Okay. And so NLP, yeah, NLP project around patient notes. Okay, so this, I think the challenge, I'm, I imagine you've probably already tried looking for data and in healthcare, and it's like extremely sparse. Um, and, and a big reason for that is that like you have patient kind of patient protection, which is a great thing, right? Um, so what you could potentially look for is like mock data sets around patient notes. So it'll be synthetic data. Um, trying to find real world data in healthcare is extremely hard. And to be honest, I would just, <laughs> because of like the security implications, I actually feel much better working with synthetic data. So if I was in your shoes, I would look up at a synthetic uh, patient note data, uh, data set, um, if that's possible. And so one of the key things like the pain problem point is that healthcare data is extremely messy. And so the EHR uh, data. I used to work with EHR notes and do a lot of text data mining in that. And the challenge is that like the way that electronic health records are, are captured, it's captured by a disparate levels of system. So you have like one hospital using this EHR system, EHR stands for electronic health records, another hospital using another system, another hospital using another system, and then they come together and it's just a complete mess. In addition, you have different doctors describing things in different ways. And then furthermore, on top of that is that sometimes doctors, like, uh, I think one of the problems you used to have is like, find all the surgeries that were conducted in this time frame among these patients. In the notes, you'll have like, I conducted, uh, I conducted the surgery, or I mentioned the surgery, or <laughs> I, uh, the patient declined the surgery, right? And so that's the kind of problem use case is like, 
making sense of data of like really, really messy and uh, kind of unstructured, unstandardized data. So that's a really interesting NLP project. And so diving further into that. So that's the pain point. Uh, any questions before I dive in a little bit further? Um, no, at this point, I still understand it because I did do an internship already where I did do some sort of extraction. It was information extraction, exactly like this. Like even there, we worked on the same like synthetic patient notes. But yeah, our use case was a little different, but it did involve going through like all of the patient notes and then aggregating things by patient. So yeah, I, I totally understand Perfect. what you're saying. And this is where I want to dive deeper into. Amazing. Amazing. So cool. You already have the context of like how challenging it is. And so one of the key things that why you can't just throw a random NLP model, like you download space your NLTK and just throw it at it is that it has really uh, context and domain specific knowledge. And so I know Spark NLP has like a healthcare package. And so I will look for specifically like healthcare specific NLP packages and start off on. And then more importantly, is like, don't try to boil the ocean, focus on one specialty. So whereas like ophthalmology or neurology, and then within that, if you still have the data set available, focus on one disease <laughs> that will scope it down to where there's already a lot of variability in that, but then you can just focus on that and that'll get you a, a solid start for end to end. And I think that's where most people get tripped up on working on healthcare data sets, especially around NLP is that they try to boil the ocean. There's so much variability, so much different domain knowledge. If you just scope it down to a specific problem use case, you'll be set up for success. Hopefully that was helpful. I know that was just like a giant dump of healthcare information. Oh, thank you. That that really helps, you know, like I've been like just meaning to do this and searching out for resources. And I know like I'm facing those same difficulties because they're confidential for the most part and protected if not confidential. So exactly this is what I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks I, a lot, Mark. I think I can't remember that EHR notes or not, but I think they have, I think the CDC look up the, the synthetic entrepreneur uh, healthcare data set. I think it's presented by the CDC, but I use it whenever I work on I, last couple of times I've worked on like trying to build my own startup around healthcare. You need data to like build a proof of concept. And we use those data sets. They're massive. They're like, <laughs> they're like millions and millions of records. You cannot run it on, uh, on your local computer. But you can download it, get a sample of it, and start playing around with it. I believe they have EHR data set in there. And it's all synthetic. And then there's, okay. another, there's another resource here uh, as well. The uh, synth mass data set Austin posted here is a link. Uh, synth mass data set that's available for download as a GZIP, as a million synthetic patient records. So I think between those two resources, that should be enough to, to get something started, something fun going on. Yeah. And it looks like in the one that I share in the chat too, there's some specific use cases around, I think childhood diabetes and orthopedics oncology as well. So there's a couple different specific uh, COVID-19 as well. So there's some specialized subset or like data sets within that, those synthetic um, sort of patient records and, and healthcare stuff there. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, wow. Thank you all. Thanks a lot. I mean, this is like a lot of data sets, which I didn't even know existed. So Really? It is posted in the, in the chat also that the, it wasn't the CDC, it's the CMS, uh, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, I believe. Um, so that's where they have that, that data set, synthetic data set as well. Okay. I yeah, know. I just copied the link. So 
And this is this is great because I didn't know that there was all this wonderful type of healthcare data out there. I always I just assumed it was private and and locked away, and that we you know, yeah. couldn't get anything close to to real world healthcare. Data. Also, exactly. So, like, I was like, quick pro tip: a great data structure to work with this massive data sets are Parquet files. Um, that's what I typically use. I'll, I'll create a quick function. I'll convert every CSV into a parquet file and it like condenses it down to like 10 megabytes compared to like a hundred or something like that. Um, look up parquet files, P-A-R-Q-U-E-T. Yeah. It's a great tool working with, when you're working with larger data and you're trying to hack something together, work locally. Yeah. Good file yep. format. Better than pickle. Uh, another good one is feather, but I don't think feathers are used that, that frequently mostly uh pickles or parquets right on man all right that should be uh some good good starting points for you there man uh, excellent question yeah yeah excellent resources actually thank you all of you like i didn't even know these data sets existed frankly and yeah. this is yeah awesome hey well if anybody else has questions go ahead let me know shout out to everybody else in the room uh so amos or betty two names i've not seen in this uh in the in the uh happy hours or sorry uh office hours or happy hours rather yet happy to have you guys here if, uh amos or betty if either of you guys have questions please do let me know um shout out also to auntie and or and christoph you guys got questions let me know keeping an eye out on uh on all the comment sections everywhere i don't see anything coming through um so we just kind of uh kind of just wing it man we, we could take it without any without any uh without any questions let's get some started so um it's something that popped up in my head while i was uh we're doing the happy hour last week we're having some discussions and something popped up into my head and i wrote this down uh on the side here and and uh, i think i'd love to get uh some perspective on this but let's say there's these legacy companies that are going through uh digital transformations right should a data scientist be a part of a digital transformation and if so like what role does the data scientist play right um and again this is coming from you know just my experience working at a legacy company and, and trying to be a part of a digital transformation and um it's, it's tough to do and you know I, I don't don't know if if that was the right place to uh to put a data scientist uh into like you know as, as somebody who's kind of spearheading initiatives on digital transformations and things like that uh, just something I'm putting out there. See if uh, see if we can get some discussion going on around that. But what what do you think, Mark? Oh, yeah, Mark's uh, Mark's thinking it through. I don't know, man. So me personally, like I feel like yeah, to a certain extent, they should be a part of a digital transformation, but um, maybe not leading the entire charge on one because that is a lot of work for a skill set that's probably not best suited for doing something like that go for a mark so i recently read an amazing article um I, i'm gonna go try to find it and put it in the chat but they discuss the same exact problem where they made up a fake company and a fictional story around driving data transformation and so essentially the the core of the story was that they had this data team that were just building notebooks and it wasn't going into production at all they're just kind of like a cost center right uh typical thing where the new company is like we need data science and they hire a whole bunch and then nothing happens. And so they hire this leader where they actually start implementing throughout the culture, like driving data maturity and driving that data infrastructure. And a lot of it's centered around SQL and getting people used to using SQL and understanding data governance and whatnot. And one of the key problems was that, uh, you know, for his data science team, 
they essentially were like, well, I'm not doing data science anymore, so I'm just going to leave. So you had people leave. You had people who are data analysts who want to jump into data science roles, right? And so it really came to this, this decision, like, we need to build data infrastructure. We have data scientists who can help, but they're not going to get the ML experience. I can promise it that will come to them in like a year, but right now it's just not possible, right? And so that was kind of the, the, the kind of core of the story is like driving data infrastructure. You're going to have to do the work ahead of time. Uh, before you can even start doing the fun stuff. But it's important that you bring in someone with that skill set so that way you can help guide that people to that d- direction. And so as a data scientist, when I read that story, I was like, wow, I've been in all kind of those shoes. Like I've been, I've been the person trying to drive the, the, the change within the company. I've been the data scientist. I'm like, oh man, I'm not really doing data science, right? But then I've also been the data scientist, like really committed to the mission and like want to see it through because that's just an awesome project to say like, hey, I built this data infrastructure. I helped drive this culture. And now I'm doing data science, the thing I built. And so bringing it back from non-fictional to like my own story is that, you know, I'm kind of in that role right now at Humu where I get to do some really cool data science things. But a lot of my work at a startup is like building the infrastructure to allow us to do those more advanced things. I could push it now, but that would just set me up for failure because I'll create a model. It won't go into production. They'll be like, that was cool, Mark. You wasted a lot of time and money on that. <laughs> and so for me, why this is interesting for me is that I want to build startups. I want to build my own company. And so I'm sticking around because I love to learn what do I need to do to build a data-focused startup? What are the steps I need, right? So my career goes go beyond just being a data scientist. Is this data science and leadership and like building capacity and so I'm getting the skill set that I couldn't get out of like a, a more advanced company, right? And so that's where I currently stand on it. I think it really comes down to your career goals. And I don't think the, comp- the company is not going to be aware of this, <laughs> especially if you're the first data science person being hired. They're not going to know how to communicate this. So this is going to be on you to basically piece out that information and pull the information yourself. And so being a first data scientist, I don't think that's a really ideal move for a newcomer because <laughs> you're not going to get the data skills you need. Yeah. But if you're more experienced, um, then like you're going to know, like, all right, I have these data skills. I can work on the side, but like this is the strategy I'm implementing. And I think being able to do that is a real like career jumpstart if you want to go into more leadership roles and not just be an IC. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. Love that perspective. And yeah, it's, it's being the first data scientist in an organization is super hard. I would not um, recommend that unless you've uh, got some significant experience in in a role like that. Uh, you learn a lot, you grow a lot because there's a lot of challenges, but uh, you're expected to do pretty much everything, which is tough. Not not Explain not Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, guys, uh, make sure you're uh, on mute if you're not uh, speaking so that we don't pick up any uh, background noise. Uh, but yeah, Mark, if you can link to that article, dude, I'd love to read that. Um, Austin, go for it. Yeah, I never thought about this. It might be a little bit um, of a sideways entry into this, but I was thinking about someone I know will kind of just like keep it uh, more anonymous here. But like someone who was working at a healthcare company and, and sort of um, they were it's sort of like this cart before the horse thing. I think you were getting at Mark where. They wanted to build like a sort of a data science, data analytics team, but with the express purpose of, it's like an EHR company um, around the express purpose of um, turning research into marketing material and insights. Um, and I think that's sort of like this um, leadership, leadership of a company wanting to hire a, a data team without really doing that infrastructure work 
at first so that there's no understanding of where, how you're going to access the data or, or where it's stored or who has access to what or why, and especially at a healthcare company. So what I kind of saw, thought in that was that I think there can be a tendency, especially at bigger legacy companies, maybe to um, sort of think of it as input output, kind of like, like more traditional software engineering. Like we present this problem, you engineer a solution and you get this output versus sort of like a building the infrastructure first so that you can understand what data you have, what it could possibly be used for, and then creating a strategy based off of that. Um, I don't know if that's exactly kind of what you were talking about, Mark, but it sort of made me think of that where I think a lot of legacy companies want to, they know they have all this data and it's like, what do we do with it? We want to turn it into something um, and go like kind of jump in line and, and go towards like, we want an output from this data versus like really going from the, the building blocks of like, how do we understand you know where our data is coming from, what it looks like, how it needs to be cleaned, who should have access to all these questions. And you just want marketing insights out of it. Um, that's just something I've seen in this particular instance, and I'm imagining plays itself out in, in different uh, companies as well that just have a lot of money and want to throw a lot of money at a problem like that, or just people or whatever it is. It sounds very familiar to me, uh, <laughs> that situation. Uh, it's tough though, man. It, it's, it's tough. Um, so I got some questions trickling in here into the uh, chat. So we'll go ahead and, and start taking some of those. Uh, if anybody has questions, uh, go ahead, drop them in the comment section, wherever it is you're watching, whether that's YouTube or LinkedIn. I got an eye out on uh, on the comment section there, or just drop it right here into the chat. I'd be happy to take on your questions. Uh, Tor has a question about blockchain uh, and document sharing. Um, probably not the best person to ask about that, but I will tell you who is, uh, Carlos Mercado. Uh, so definitely go ahead and, and link up with uh, Carlos Mercado. Send him a message. He's uh, the resident data science blockchain expert. Uh, he's got some awesome stuff going on in the uh, uh, blockchain space as well. And just his overall interest in, in decentralized finance. So I'd probably reach back to him for that. Cool. Could you text that in a message? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, they don't call this short-term memory without a reason. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, there's a link right there from Mark to Carlos's uh, LinkedIn page. So go ahead and check that out. Awesome. Highly Thanks. recommend checking out his book as well. He wrote, wrote on decentral, decentralized finance. It really got me up to speed on the basics of blockchain. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a great, great read. Um, and there's also some good uh, free courses on LinkedIn Learning as well. Um, a couple of them by, um, I'm probably going to mess up his last name, uh, Jonathan Raishantel. I actually interviewed him for my podcast as well. That'll be released sometime in the future. But he's got a lot of really, really cool courses on LinkedIn learning um, that help introduce people to, um, to the concepts of blockchain and cryptocurrency and, and all that stuff. Um, Christoph has a question. Christoph, go for it. And then, by the way, if, if you guys do have questions, please let me know. Um, keep an eye out on all the chats. Yeah, it's a good question, man. Uh, now, how do you avoid burnout? I mean, that's tough, man. I, I, I went, like I said, I was going through some pretty severe burnout uh, earlier this year. And, and it was because I did not take rest. Like I did not take breaks. I was just going, going, going. Uh, so I think that is probably the key to avoiding burnout is just take, take a break and take, take a break. If you, if you feel like you're doing too much, like it got to the point where I was waking up every morning, just my head was hurting. I was getting like six hours of sleep a night. Um, I was getting cynical about everything. And then at that point I was like, let me take a break. But I didn't know what burnout was. I didn't know what it was until I started reading. Um, I was reading a book um, 
Max Frenzel's book. He's a uh, AI researcher. He wrote a book called uh, Time Off. Him and um, I forgot his co-author's name. Um, but he, the episode I, I released with him is going to be in a couple of weeks, uh, all about burnout. Um, and I was reading that book and I was like, holy shit, man, I'm suffering these symptoms, these burnout symptoms. Um, because mostly it just didn't, didn't have a good rest ethic. Uh, but Tor, it sounds like you have some tips for avoiding burnout because it sounds like he's a... Uh, just he's just one. Burnout. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to say no. Because generally speaking, it's like you have to know your own limits and try and learn your own limits. Start to learn signals. There's plenty of stuff out there that tells you what kind of signals you can look for. But the key is really to learn to say no. It's okay to say no. You know, people will accept. Uh, and, you know, if you need extra time, get yourself the extra time. Um, that's the, I've been through the burnouts once, learned my lesson. I'm not doing that again. So when the signals comes up, it's time to take a break, breathe, do something else. And like I said, if people start pushing, asking, that's normally the expectations. Like you're trying to deliver on other people's expectations, not your own. So learn to say no. That's the key. Yes, I like that. Good, simple, actionable advice. Learn to say no. What about you, uh, Austin or Mark? Any tips for avoiding burnout? Oh, man. Um it's tough. I think one of the difficulties of this is that burnout has now become sort of a thing that people have like accepted that it's okay to talk about, but then inevitably, so that's good. And there's a shared struggle in that. And especially after this last year and a half with COVID and lockdowns and work from all this stuff. But then I think the, the flip side of it is that you're, then you're also seeing everything pop up around how to fix burnout or there, there's all these like little niche markets that pop up about like, self-care and wellness and even the idea of taking care of yourself has become like commercialized all of a sudden and has become like fit into the mold of like take care of yourself so you can get back to work and i think like that is such a dangerous way to think about this um so it's a, it's a tough problem i've always found that uh that that idea of self-care and wellness is always really about is really hyper personal and it's about identifying the things in your life that that sort of um make you feel connected again so you were talking about um, you know, and the NBA earlier, I think about little things like when I'm feeling burnout or, or this sort of type of thing, I, I feel less inclined to like call people and talk on the phone with them. And like simple things like that are really valuable to me and they make me feel better, but it's like harder to get over that hurdle. So I think it's like a really, um, I think it's, it's hard to sort of have a general sweeping sort of thing about how to avoid burnout. But I think it's really like taking an honest look at yourself and identifying those things that make you feel more connected to family or more connected to your interests and really, um, just for, like really pushing yourself to, to prioritize those things. And especially in those moments where you're feeling like the work is, or your curiosity is dimmed or whatever, or it feels lower or whatever. I think it's a hyper-personal thing, but I think um, steering away from some of like the, the, like the commercial like suggestions or here's a product you need, like don't add more products into your life to solve burnout. Don't add more apps. Like just don't do it. Like just find those things that are personal to you that make you feel more connected to your immediate surroundings as well, where you live, the people in your community or groups that you're a part of, whether that's digitally or, or, um, or uh, physically, that, that's kind of my suggestion. It's not, it's sort of, <laughs> there's a bit of abstraction there and not quite a hundred percent helpful, but I think it's a deeply personal thing that has been tried to make it seem like it's um, fixable by like products. And I just don't think that's, that's quite the right answer either. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true, man. 
don't get an app for the burnout. There's, you know, there's, there's no app that can really cure that. Uh, Mark, what about you? Oh man, burnout's been like uh, a theme of my early, early twenties. Um, and up until now, I'm like now getting into my late twenties and I'm just now being like, oh, it's okay not to work all the time. Uh, and so I've, I, my pattern all the way from undergrad, grad school, my first few jobs, grind 80 hours a week, burn out, and then recover, do bad work for a week or two, and then just like 80 hours a week. And just I was just in this cycle, right? Uh, the thing that really broke that cycle for me, which is like being up front, is like therapy, <laughs> like really working with a therapist to be like, hey, why do I have these patterns? Why do I keep on going through this? It's like a, it's like a self-destructive thing for me. And so what I've learned through all those lessons is one, like I, I love Tor's advice is just saying no to things. So I, I say no a lot more. And more importantly is I find what's my 70% capacity and try not to exceed that. Cause you, you're going to want to fill up like, oh, I have all this extra time. Like, let me do it all. The reason why I say 70% is that you have, always have this black swan thing that pops up in your life that you weren't expecting. And that gives you a buffer to be like, okay, I'm stretched thin, but I'm not going to burn out. Right. So that takes time I, to figure out what my 70% is. And then in addition, the, the final thing is like sleep. That's the key thing for help me personally uh, avoid burnout. And it's like this, this weird thing where like, I have all these deadlines. I'm just going to sacrifice sleep and stay up late to finish it. And then <laughs> you stay up late you finish it. And then the next day, cause you're so sleep deprived, you're so unproductive. So you work slower. Then you're like, Oh, I didn't get the work done. Let me stay up late. <laughs> and you start this cycle over and over again until you're like completely burnt out. And so for me, when I find myself feeling like, Oh my God, I need to stay up late. I'm like, dude, 10 o'clock, go to bed, like break this cycle. And that's the thing that helps, uh, helps me avoid burnout. But with that said, like, you're still going to have hiccups along the way. I literally burned out last week. <laughs> um, I just overcommitted myself. I, I, uh, I stuck to my 70% and I added 40% more. So I was like at 110% capacity. I just did way too much. I said yes to too many things. Right. And I, I, so what I did, I was like, I was like, Oh wow, I'm really burnt out. I'm really frustrated. I can't focus at work. And so Friday night, through this morning, I just done nothing. I just slept <laughs> and just read and hanged out. I watched Lord of the Rings with my wife, uh, which is like four hours long for one movie. <laughs> and so really forced myself to take a step back, rest. And then right when I'm more, uh, more bright eyed, right? Uh, I get back to work, which is kind of counter to Austin's advice of like <laughs> self-care to work more. But I think for me, I enjoy my work so much that it's really hard to balance that, but I question that sometimes. So I like Austin's advice as well. Yourself, go for it. Uh, so first of all, uh, great comments. They, they're very valuable. And Mark, I think it's very unfair that you're still in your 20s <laughs> because you're, like, you're speaking like you were in your 40s or 50s. <laughs> That's just unfair. Uh, and... Um, uh, I think Harper, you said there are different types of burnout, or did anyone say say that? Uh, uh, are there any, are there different type of burnout? Different. Types? I don't know if there's different different types. I'm sure there's probably varying degrees of it. I mean, maybe there are different types types of burnout, but because it, right now I don't know if I had a burnout because I didn't work too much. It was actually the opposite because I 
like I was way below my productivity levels because I thought my job wasn't fulfilling or anything like that. So I just mastered procrastination to extreme levels. And I told myself that I had a burnout and right now I'm not sure anymore if it was a burnout because I found my job uh, purposeless. It's, I, I just hated it and I didn't want to do that anymore. And I'm just thinking about it right now if it was also a burnout or it doesn't match the definition. Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of like burnout to me. Burnout combined with you know job dissatisfaction, a uh, combination of those two. Um, it looks like Auntie says there's three types of burnouts. There's overload, under challenge, and neglect. Um, so I, I did not know that. So that's that's good to know, man. Uh, overload, under challenge, and neglect. And I think when I was going through some stuff earlier this year, it was definitely just the overload part of it. And when I like like it was just in, I felt like I that I was just putting too many uh, artificial uh, pressures on myself, right? Like, and that was that was what caused me to burn out, right? It's like, oh man, like I. I, I I have to listen to an audiobook in the shower and on my walk and I have to use all my time productively. Like can't take a break. I can't waste time. No, can't do any of that. And that led to me just being super, super burnt out. And now when I when I find myself like, okay, like, you know, if I feel like not listening to an audiobook and just listen to music, that's cool, man. I'm just gonna listen to, you know, my 1990s alternative rock music. That's the stuff I like. That's stuff that makes me feel uh connected. Um, but hey, you just gotta give yourself a break when you start feeling that that just teaching that everything at least for me mark go for it i actually just have a, a more so a question for you because i listened to jonathan tesser podcast with you earlier today or yesterday and it was really good and a big part of that was talking about like the self-improvement aspect mm-hmm. and so i guess like how does the self-improvement aspect tie in with like the burnout and based on your last story, it kind of sounds like maybe you took the self-improvement to extreme. I did. <laughs> it yeah. caused burnout in a way. So yes, I'm just yes. curious, like, what was the lesson from all that? <laughs> yeah, dude, I was, I, for me, dude, I was just doing what, it really was that case. I took that self-improvement thing to the extreme. And I started taking everything that I read in books as if it was a prescription, right? Like, I, I was just following the recipe. But really, what, I, you know, what I'm starting to realize now is, okay, well, I, I just should take bits and pieces of what resonates for me from these different books that I'm reading and just do something for myself that works, right? Like me having to write in like, for the longest time I was writing like four or five different journals every morning. Like, you know, like, just felt like I had to do that. Like, that's the thing I was supposed to do. I need to be doing that. I need to be waking up and, you know, following the uh, Robin Sharma's uh, prescription that he lays out in the 5 a.m. club and I'll be doing that. Otherwise, I'm not going to be successful, right? I, was, I wasn't doing self-improvement just for the sake of improving myself. I thought if I do these things, then I will become successful, right? Like the reason that I'm not satisfied or happy in life is because I don't feel successful. And if I want to become successful, then I need to do these things that all these people are telling me to do. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And that was like the artificial pressure I was putting on myself. I don't know if that answers your question. Whose success are you talking Your own or other people's expectations of your success? My own, because I got super high expectations of myself, well, especially, you know, when, you know, like, look, man, like, I, I, I wasted a lot of my youth, right? Like, you know, I, I, in, in my 20s, I grew up mostly, like, you know, in, in Sacramento, South Sacramento. I think Mark might be familiar with, with my neighborhood and what it's like and how easy it is for somebody to just, you know, fall off into the wrong path. And that was definitely me. And I've wasted a good decade 
of of my life and i feel like okay now it's time to catch up now it's time to you know get back on track and start course correcting um and i felt like the only way for me to do that was just to put all this insane amount of pressure on myself to just quickly quickly get to like i can't make the future arrive any quicker right by just spinning my wheels in my head you know what i mean like it was just this weird thing or i don't know if that answers your question go with the flow man that's what a dutch guy was telling me when we were out yeah that's like stop one year the entire evening just like go with the flow man yeah no it's it's true man you have to have fun and to me whenever you do something where you have fun that fun is actually giving you that 20 percent extra energy and if you're so focused on the career path, you very quickly actually may lose things because you're working on this one particular career path and then you're missing opportunities because you're not open to it. And, and to me, it's like going with the soul, like the guy said, really it is to listen and be part of the environment you're in and then follow that and at the same time you still need to have that core path that you want for yourself because if that's stuck in your mind everything else will fall into place yeah yeah no 100 agree with that uh austin go for it and after austin we'll go to uh to mark i think one thing i've been thinking as we've been having this conversation is that there can be a tendency when we talk about these kinds of issues to either to sort of paint them in extremes like in one, in one sense, burnout is a completely internal self thing, like that you need to just overcome, which seems like a fallacy, a bit of a fallacy to me. Or on the other end, it's it's to say, this is 100% external. It's these systems. It's my employer. It's my relationships. It's this, that, and the other that's causing the burnout. And I think what's really important is it's, it's always more nuanced than that. And it's always somewhere in the middle. And I think as you kind of reflect on those feelings or, or what's going on, is to sort of weigh those things, try to find a way to weigh those things at least in a balanced way, um, so that you're not putting all of this guilt on yourself and you're not projecting all of it outward. Because I think there's a tendency, especially when you're feeling cynical or especially when you're feeling down or burnout or whatever, is to really burrow into one of those options. Mine happens to be that I push things out externally because I maybe don't want to deal with the internal uh, failings of my personality. But I tend to say like, oh, it's the system, it's this job, it's the industry, it's this, it's and, and there's truth in that, just like there's truth in that it's an internal thing as well that I struggle with to, you know, figure out my boundaries and define my boundaries. So it's like, you're sort of, I think, I think it's really important when you're kind of taking stock of all of that is to really, really try to balance those things um, as much as you can to really sort of locate the source of this um, so that, so that you're doing it in a way that is holistic as much as possible. It's tough. It's not easy, but that's, just, that's something I've been thinking. Mark, go for it. Yeah, I think Austin just touched on it. And also, Harper, your, your comment kind of reminded me of this, of just like the role of guilt <laughs> driving your behaviors in unhealthy yeah. ways. And specifically, you know, you're talking about growing up in Sacramento and like, I definitely for a brief moment got caught around the wrong crowd as well. And so my crazy work ethic happened after that. So I was like, wow, my mom sacrificed everything for me. I almost threw it all away. And like, that's horrible. So like, I'm going to work and crazy hard to make sure it doesn't happen to make sure I don't throw away my mom's sacrifices. Right. And, and what was funny is like, I actually had a conversation with my mom, like a couple of years ago, I was on my path of like unlearning all these bad habits. And she's like, my happiness is for you to be like happy and doing something you love, not working yourself to death. And when we had that conversation, I was like, wow, like, 
I didn't need to work this hard. I, I could still work hard, but the level of which I wasn't working hard to work hard. I was working hard to avoid that sense of guilt and not just facing that. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I was talking about like, the therapy, like having a trained professional to like talk you through that guilt. It's like so helpful. Yeah, that, that's powerful, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was literally typing out a comment about therapy being part of this equation, Mark, right? When you said the word therapy, I was like literally <laughs> typing out a comment about how important that is to like sort of internalize these realizations or really put them in balance because it's so hard to do alone because you're, there's the limits to how your mind can and your body can process these things and having these trusted um, sort of sources who don't necessarily know the inner workings or your past or your childhood or this or that can be super, super important to like help kind of figure out some of these balance points and nuances great great discussion uh that kicked off christoph thank you very much um yeah yeah man burnout's the burnout's the thing try to avoid it take rest when you need to and uh just don't be so hard on yourself like tor says take it easy like i was taking stuff to the extreme like i was taking the stoic philosophy stuff to the extreme uh <laughs> like being just like the trying to be the epitome of, of a stoic and that was just doing it the wrong way uh and and you know incorporating more of some other philosophies into my life and finding some combination of those to help me have an operating system to deal with this crazy thing we call reality. That's weird. That was unhelpful. Anyways, uh, got a question from Harinath. Are you still here? Yes, you are, Harinath. Do you want to uh, go ahead and uh, go with the question or do you want me to read it out? Yeah, it would be fine if you read it out. Okay, great. Yeah, so Harinath is saying um, that Harinath has just recently graduated and gotten a job as a software engineer, but during college was focused most of the time on deep learning and machine learning, uh, finding it really hard to focus on uh, his job whenever you see stuff that's related to data, trying to change a career path. So could I suggest a, a best way to approach recruiters? Um, I mean, if, if, you, you've got, if you're working as a software engineer, but focused on deep learning and machine learning in college, I think you're already kind of set up for success, right? I don't know if you're calling based out of India, I got to say, look, man, like, like, I don't know if the advice I'm giving is going to be applicable to India. It's an entirely different country, entirely different culture, value system, right? So like you can take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, like I'm focused mostly on North America and, you know, stuff like that. But the way I would suggest approaching a recruiter is just if you see a posting for a job that you like, first of all, just go and apply for it and then try to find somebody in the company, whether it's a technical recruiter or a hiring manager, and just shoot them a message and say, hey, look, uh, you guys have a job that's posted. I've went ahead and applied for it already. Let me tell you a few reasons why I feel like I can add a tremendous amount of value to your company, right? So just start applying for jobs and start just talking to recruiters, right? Nobody's going to, I don't think anybody's going to be like, oh, well, you're a software engineer. What do you want to do with, you know, machine learning, deep learning stuff? Like, well, that's not, that those aren't incompatible things, you know what I mean? So you're going to have to go through the interview process just like anyone else, right? So you're going to prove that you know how to do this stuff as you go through that interview process. Um, so I think the, the way to approach recruiters is just start applying for jobs. And once you apply for a job, go to the company website on LinkedIn, just send out a message be like, hey, look, you know, this is why I think I'm a good fit. Uh, Mark, go for it. Yeah. So I just want to iterate, like, this is not my advice. I'm just repeating something that Makiko said in other, <laughs> other office hours. But it really resonated with me. So she's a ML engineer now. She, she used to be a data scientist and she had this killer resume um, that was really good, but she wasn't getting ML engineer interviews at all. 
So she talked to a few of her ML engineer friends. She's like, you have an awesome resume for a data scientist, <laughs> not an ML engineer. And so when you're applying, they're thinking of you as a data scientist, not, not the role. And so she said when she finally switched her resume to make it come off as an ML engineer, it, it essentially like opened up the floodgates and she got started getting all these job offers. So I guess the question I have for you is like, is your resume set up as a software engineer or is your resume set up for like the role you want, whether it's ML engineer or data scientist? Yeah, that's an excellent point as well. So, and I think to make your resume be kind of set up like a uh, machine learning engineer as opposed to software engineer is just focus as much as possible on highlighting the data, the machine learning related work that you've done in previous roles, whether it's at your current company, previous companies, or through personal projects and, and things like that, right? So highlight more of the machine learning aspect of the work that you've done previously uh, going forward. So Harinath, let's I'm gonna open it up to you for, for follow-up. So please go ahead and uh, let us know if you got any questions. Uh, thank you very much. First, uh, like, give, like actually, Mark, what Mark said was like that's the thing I'm facing right now. And actually, my resume is designed in such a way it had uh, two uh, deep learning projects, and ha I also published two research papers as well. I didn't get, I don't know, like why isn't uh, I don't get any reply from recruiters yet, like any stuff like okay, some feedback or something. So yeah, that's the problem I'm facing. So make sure you're highlighting those as much as possible in not only on your resume, but when you reach out to a recruiter, right? So the, the first thing is if all you're doing is applying for jobs and just like playing, you know, like I hope that my resume gets noticed, like you're just sending it through a digital abyss. Like, you know, like who knows if somebody's going to actually look at the resume, right? So you need to make sure you're reaching out to people. You need to be more proactive, right? That just kind of increases your chances. So let's say, for example, you apply for a job at, I don't know, Facebook, right? And you submit your resume online, but then you don't do anything, no follow-ups or anything like that, then you're not really taking much of that job search process into your control, right? So you can move the needle just a little bit in your favor um, by trying to find a technical, trying to find the technical recruiter attached to that particular job posting and just shoot them a message and say, hey, look, I've applied for the role already, but let me give you a quick rundown on why you know I'm the right person for this job. Currently, I'm working as a software engineer, but I've got a lot of experience in deep learning and machine learning. You know, I've written a paper that where we discuss this, this, and this topic, which is very similar to what it is that you guys are describing in the job posting. I feel like I could add a ton of value to your company. Um, here's my resume. Let me know if, uh, if you'd like to set up a, a time to call, right? or time to chat on a call. So that would be my, my advice there, right? So are you doing that? Like, what's your process like when you're applying for jobs? Like, what do you do? Uh -huh. Are you just applying and that's it? Yeah, actually, the thing you said, uh, following up to the recruiter, I've been actually trying to do that thing like recently. And uh, and in that search, I found you as well. Yeah, like when I found you uh, like the, as a data scientist, and I was very thankful to you for connecting with me via LinkedIn. So I what I usually do is that I upload my resume in the company job portal or whatever. And uh, I try to find, uh, like actually, I find the job offers directly in the career's website rather than finding it on LinkedIn or what. So I, like, uh, I, I don't usually do this uh, thing like, okay, approaching the recruiter directly via message or something. Because I actually, like, as a, like, new to this uh, corporate world and all, I don't know the actual process and all, like, how to 
um put myself there and uh, let people recognize me yeah i have that abilities to for that certain role yeah yeah so definitely if you're applying on the actual company website just go to to linkedin as well and try to find the same posting on linkedin because typically it'll have like the 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 recruiter that's attached to it right there on the job posting and then when you do reach out please don't send a message that just says hi because if if all you do is send a message that says hi nobody's going to respond to you uh so make sure you just put all the information that you need to convey in one message right and make sure that your linkedin profile is looking clean right make sure that you've got you know you got a professional looking picture your whatever linkedin head header background picture looks nice and clean professional make sure that your job descriptions you know all your stuff there like it's looking good right that's how you're going to get noticed make sure there's a link to your github a link to your research papers uh, make sure your about me section is captivating right these are all things that you can control there's so much in the job search process that you can control to make yourself look like a better candidate right so if you focus on optimizing that then you don't necessarily have to be at the mercy of what's it called the ATS applicant tracking system or anything like that right all of a sudden you'll notice that opportunities will start coming to you right so if your linkedin resume looks clean if you're active if you're posting insightful comments and you're doing insightful posts and you know you're building a brand for yourself you'll start to get noticed more and more so hopefully that was helpful yeah okay yeah thank you thank you yeah Real, real yeah, quick, I'll I, be doing that. I put a link to a post I made exactly on this topic where I just create a whole template for your um for your email to recruiters. It's my go-to template to get responses from from most people. Yeah, that's a really good template too. I remember seeing that. Um, looking at it right now as well. Yeah, yeah, man, that's what it's all about, man. Like, it's completely okay to reach out to technical recruiters. I wouldn't people I would not reach out to. I wouldn't reach out to like an individual contributor, data scientist, just because like they don't really have that much clout yet right and nobody's really going to be that comfortable with just providing a reference or recommendation for a complete stranger right if they have to put their own you know reputation on the line um so the people you should by all means reach out to is the recruiters right technical recruiters especially and then if you see somebody that's got like um a a leader title attached to their to their name on linkedin you know manager or lead or director something like that I'd reach out to them rather than an individual contributor data scientist. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Harish. I'll just go through the template and uh, I'll just follow up you guys next week to uh, yeah. how's it working. And it's also a numbers game, so just make sure you just keep on applying as much as possible. Like, uh, I have got like I felt like this this thing that I do to help temper my expectations with any job it is that I apply to. It's I just tell myself with any given. job application once i submit the resume there realistically is probably like a 1% chance right and if there's a 100 100 parallel universes just by me submitting the 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 resume in one of them i might get the job and then as i move through the process i'll update my probability right like okay i've cleared the hr round all right there might be a 5% chance that i get this job all right great i made it past the first uh technical screen second technical screen like and uh, and up until like it 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 gets close and close to the uh to the end of the process i just keep updating that probability but i never really um let it exceed a certain threshold and that's just something i do personally uh it's not like like it sounds bayesian in in in, in the way that i'm approaching it but there's nothing mathematical about what i'm doing there's nothing statistically rigorous it's just the way i 
manage my own uh, expectations of life. I guess is is the way to put it, right? Uh, Mark says I'm a nerd. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got this this thinking framework from a, the book Thinking in Bets that really helped me. That Annie Duke book Thinking in Bets that helped me really uh, understand how I can use probability in my own life, and then I coupled that with um with all this. Uh, research I've done about parallel universes and, and multiverses and things like that. And I'm like, oh man, doesn't it make sense? I might sound crazy, but at least I'm able to to stay centered and manage my own uh, expectations. So we got some actually questions coming in from LinkedIn finally. Uh, there's a comment coming here from uh, Mohammed saying, nice hairstyle, Mark. Uh, so Mohammed likes your hairstyle. Um, Jaya, Jaya is asking if we can point her to a GitHub resource that uses NLP to analyze Yelp reviews. Um, I don't have one right off the top of my head, but let me just kind of uh, see if we can find one together. So this is how I would go about doing it, right? The guys, uh, being able to search on Google is a, uh, is a, a skill set that I think every data scientist should have. So all you got to do is go Yelp reviews and then we could just say file type that we're looking for ipi notebook ipi notebook yes uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff that will come up and you kind of just look through them and, and see which one is helpful like okay like for example like if this was somebody's project that they had submitted uh, as part of their portfolio i probably wouldn't bring this person on for a uh, interview just because it's not very well done um this one either there's like no clarity as to what they're thinking um but if all you're looking at is just some ways to uh, help yourself understand how to approach problems, that's probably how I would uh, go about doing that. So just Yelp reviews. You can even put um, natural language processing and kind of see what comes up. Um, but I don't, I don't really have one off the top of my head that I can help you, Jaya. Um, but maybe we could chat online and um, I can try to find some for you. Do, you. do you guys have any? Uh, uh, Mark's got a good link here. Talk to us about this. Yeah, so shameless plug, I have a tutorial where I did a whole NLP analysis on my own LinkedIn data. So it's not Yelp data, but you can easily take all the lessons from this and um, apply it to uh, apply it to Yelp. And so I walk you through how to do a whole um, essentially a back of words NLP analysis using uh, using uh, LinkedIn data, but you can just easily switch it out for for Yelp. And this is a example of a project that will definitely get you noticed because look, look how clean that README file is. <laughs> it looks so nice. It tells me everything I need to know uh, in a quick rundown before I even get to, uh, to to the notebook. Then once I get to the notebook, I'm like, oh yes, he's telling me what he's thinking, and it's just so much more uh, enjoyable to read through. Um, so those are some great resources. Also, shout out to Eric Sims in the house. Eric, how's it going? Yo, just, uh, I was on LinkedIn. So you guys are still streaming. Thought I'd jump in and say, hey. Right on, man. Thank you. Hey, Eric, if you know any uh, good resources for um, the uh, NLP projects with um, the Yelp review stuff, uh, let us know. Let Jaya know in the uh, LinkedIn comments. Uh, help her out. Um, cool. But Jaya, hopefully that's helpful. If not, uh, holler at me uh, on Slack, Jaya. We'll see what we could find out for you. Uh, another question coming in here from uh, Joel uh, Jasty. Joel is saying, he's messaging us from LinkedIn here, trying to break into ML. Any advice on how to learn better and become more employable? Ah, interesting that you say that. I have no professional background in coding, but I'm currently learning Python. Any advice would be great. That's so funny because I literally am launching a course called the Employable Data Scientist and another one further down the line about how to learn. Um, but how to learn better, I've got two immediate resources that you can go to. 
um, that are going to be shameless plugs for myself. One of them is the interview I did with Scott H. Young. He wrote a book called Ultra Learning. So go and listen to that podcast episode with Scott H. Young uh, called Become an Ultra Learner and also get his book, uh, Ultra Learning. It's all about um, essentially how to learn faster. And then also Barbara Oakley did an interview with her. She did an entire uh, online class. It's a open online class on Coursera. It's like the most popular or most enrolled in class on Coursera called Learning How to Learn. Those are great uh, resources as well, uh, as well as anything by Jim Quick. Jim Quick's book, Faster, um, is, is good as well. So those are great resources. And I didn't give you any advice. I just gave you a bunch of resources because um, that's a big question. Uh, I would say I would say start by going through some of those podcast episodes that I mentioned and uh, put you off in a, in a good start. And to become more employable, well, you know, do more projects. Yeah, do more projects, right? Um, what about you guys? Can I throw something so, in there? Yes, please. Go for it. So learn better is just like be stupid. Like just recognize like you don't know a bunch of stuff and it's, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you know, like I just like yesterday posted on, uh, on LinkedIn because I saw from another LinkedIn post some like SQL um, like window functions. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. So uh, I went, I looked it up and it was like first value and last value thought like, this is going to be super helpful for me in my work. And so I wrote up a quick query and I, I shared it uh, on LinkedIn. And I always have this moment of thinking, I am the only person that doesn't already know this. Like, this is, this is dumb. Why am I even sharing it? But then I go ahead and share it anyway. And people are like, like, Hey, thanks for sharing that. I'd never seen it either. It's like, Hey, well, what do you know? I, you know, I'm, I'm learning. And the way that I learn is by sharing and talking and working together and just recognizing, like, I don't know stuff. Lots of people don't know stuff. It's cool. Share it. And everybody learns together. And if they already know it, I've never had I've never had anybody on LinkedIn tell me that's stupid. Everybody already knows that you idiot. Everybody is like supportive and helpful or they provide new resources. It's, it's great. So a way to learn better is, isn't that like learn in public? I feel like I've heard that several I like times that. from people. Yeah. I like that learn in public. I think that I've heard Austin talk about that as well. And I mean, that's what, what I'm doing with deep learning as well. Right. And it's great because you'll get a lot of interesting um, uh, questions and those questions will make you, make you think. Um, but you know, to 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 give some quick actionable advice to uh to Joel here, real quick, I'm gonna pull up this uh, carousel that I've made from stuff on uh, Jim Quick's book. I like his framework, and it's called learning faster. Right, first thing, kind of similar to what Eric was saying, is just forget, forget what you already know. Uh, and I've got this posted somewhere on my LinkedIn as well. Um, but I can also send you this directly. Joel will be happy to, or I'll just post it again today. Um, forget. A is for act, S is for state, because all learning is state dependent. So once you go into a learning session, convince yourself that you're happy and convince yourself that it's something that you actually want to do. That's actually a good use of your time. Don't go into it thinking it's a chore. Uh, T, which is similar to what um, Eric is, is saying, like learning in public, try to teach it to someone else. Um, I was reading um, a book, I forgot which, I think it was uh, the Creativity and the Age of Innovation, something like that. He was talking about, the author was talking about, okay, I came across this topic. I didn't understand it that well. So I figured, let me go to my department chair and ask if I could teach a class about it. Um, and so by trying to teach something, you have to learn it. You get to learn it twice, right? So that's kind of like the approach I'm taking with deep learning is I'm learning in public and I'm trying to take a teaching approach to it so that I can try to distill this complex idea, these complex things, and just try to make it as simple as possible for myself to understand and for anybody who 
comes across my post to, to make it easy to understand. So teach. Uh, e is for enter, right? Yes, enter. Notes, man. You need notes. Um, that's something that uh, I've been stepping up in, in my game and review. Review as much as possible. So review, spaced repetition is a great framework for reviewing. Um, I've got my uh, Zettelkasten set up so that every day just gives me a random note that I've written so I can review that note. Um, yeah, there's some actionable tips there. Um, and then there's another part to uh, Joel's question. Um, but before we do that, Mark, any insights on how to learn better? Mark or Austin, any tips? Um, I mean, I would echo what's been said already. I think the learning in public is huge for a couple of reasons. One is because it allows you to fail and to see that every, or like to, you know, struggle and see that other people share that, that sentiment and, and that genuineness is appreciated. And also there's a more functional thing around that of just like the more you're out there sharing your journey, there's the more visible you are and the more you can create these network effects just out of, out of nothing. And if, and if you keep all of this internal into yourself because of this worry of being looked at a certain way, um, I just know, I mean, I've, I've gone through this recently. I've been doing a round of hiring and it's, it's, it's a unique role in the sense that we're asking for folks to create content in addition to technical work. But I really do think like from a visibility sense, like sharing your journey is becoming an increasingly valued approach and skill set to different kinds of employers from what I've seen. Just the fact that you have that out there and it gives you an artifact that you can see how you progressed and it allows you to tell your story better. One of the things I'm realizing is if you if you're just you have technical skills but you don't have a story attached to it, it's much harder for people to connect with the, the journey you've made. So I think like having that artifact is and that journey documented is really, really important um, because it allows you to see how much you've learned over time. And it allows you to like craft your story, which I think can be really important for um, for hiring managers, especially at smaller companies too, who want someone who can do a bunch of different things. It depends on obviously where you're looking to break in, but I think there's there's something to that. I think smart people, um, good hiring managers, people who want multifaceted people, uh, see that as genuine, see it as sincere, and, and want that on their teams. Excellent, excellent tips, um, uh, Mark. Any yeah, I was. I mean, I feel like there's nothing more much to add. I mean, I think both comments are really great. I just want to highlight my LinkedIn strategy. It revolves around two pillars: it's vulnerability and uh, teaching and learning as I go, and like sharing that out. And that has opened up way more opportunities. Kind of like what Austin said, like employers find me now because I'm constantly posting what I'm learning, and eventually, like I learn it and I share the lessons learned. And so employers feel confident that like, oh, he can bring that to the table for uh, for XYZ role. And so what you'll find is if you start sharing pretty publicly and pretty often, you'll you'll build kind of like that network effect and you'll start having people come into your your mail saying like, hey, do you want to work at XYZ company? Uh, and that all comes from just like my content. I'll normally start saying, hey, I found you via your post or via your comments. It seemed really interesting. I saw your profile. I would love to chat to see if you want to work here. It happens so often um, when you put yourself out there. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think those are the funnest types of things to do. Like those, you know, uh, Kenji does his sixty-six days of data. There's like the twenty-one day challenges, and I mean, you put it out there, and you know, what's the worst that could happen? Maybe you interpret something incorrectly, and somebody might ask a question, or somebody might offer a tip, and you learn even more. Um, one thing to not be afraid of is those. Uh, uh, I forgot who posted it. I think I'm butchering his name, but I'm pretty sure it, it's uh, Ugo Chukwa. Uh, he talked about the statistics police on LinkedIn and how when people are sharing uh, knowledge on LinkedIn, uh, there's like a couple of individuals 
particularly in the domain of statistics that will come and just like try to tear you apart for whatever reason. Ignore those people. Uh, not everyone is like that. Most people want to help you and most people want you to, to learn and, and grow and improve. Uh, Eric's got some great comments here in the chat. Oh. oh yeah, go for it. Go for it. I was gonna say quick comment on haters. Like also it's your platform. So like you're going to have haters being like, what do you know? Or, like, why are you speaking on this? Like you don't want those people in your circle and they show up, just block them or remove yeah. them. Block. You're, you're gonna, and it's easy to anchor on those people. They, they're just bitter that they're not sharing. They don't feel comfortable. Share your stuff because you're the, the more you can gain way more from all the people learning together, or maybe people who are willing to lend a hand, be like, oh, I've already learned this. Here are my tips. Then the few people who are going to be naysayers. Uh, Tor, Tor says, uh, remember the three T's things take time, things take available time. Uh, but Eric, what are, what are some of these epic gem comments you're dropping in the uh, chat? I'm just kind of along with <clears throat> kind of along with what Austin was saying about sharing your journey and. It's like your journey, <clears throat> I was just thinking about how your journey is really like one of the only unique things that you have to offer because I mean, that I have to offer because there are a zillion other, you know, analysts more or less like me. And, uh, and so what do I have to offer? Well, I can offer, first off, I can get myself a little bit of visibility just by showing and sharing what I'm learning because on the surface, we all look pretty much the same. You know, it's like we, it's like you say, you know, when you see members of another species, they all look the same. It's like even looking at other, you know, humans on the surface, we all look the same until you like can get some insight into who we really are. And this is a great way to do it. And that's one of the reasons I like posting um, like on LinkedIn is because it's like, like little snippets, little windows that they last longer. They're not, you know, they, they last, they'll be there next week. They're there in the middle of the night, whatever, when I'm, when I'm not right there to show and share my journey, somebody can see that. And I used to like people comment on my posts and say like, Oh, it's been cool to see your data journey, your Python journey or your SQL journey and things like that. And it used to kind of bug me. Cause it was like, ah, you're saying like, good to see your SQL journey. Like, I don't know anything. Like I know some stuff, you know, it like hurts my ego and I want to like show that I, I know something, you know, but then I'm like, actually it really doesn't matter like it is my sequel journey here it is wherever wherever here is it's here it's now it can't be anywhere else and if i wait until later until i'm there to share it like i'll never be there and so the journey is really all i can share and seems to be good enough yeah that's i absolutely love that man yeah people are are not uh replaceable man you're your you're you there's only one you so share your journey it's not like i could have somebody else pop into it artist of data science happy hour who happens to be named Eric with a you know Tie Fighter background uh, and true. gives me gives all the same feels and all the same vibes to the happy hour. That's you know it won't happen. Only Eric Sims can make the the happy hours what it is, right? I love that. Uh, Austin, go for it. Yeah, I, Mark, you've talked about this quite a bit in different sessions about the importance of being able to communicate with different stakeholders as well in in actual in a job, especially a data job where the functionality functions can be very different and undefined at times and, and this and that. I think there's this other benefit to sharing is like you hone your ability to communicate what you're working on over time. And if you keep it all internal, it's, it's just harder to learn how to structure that kind of content, um, harder to learn how to structure that kind of communication, harder to learn how to talk about the caveats in your work and, and where there's uncertainty and where there's more certainty. So I think just like in a functional sense, just like practicing that, um, and then getting the other benefits of building a network, sharing your journey, all this kind of stuff. Like 
that's just becoming more and more and more and more important is the ability to communicate this stuff. Because like you were saying, Eric, there's just like, I was looking at, you know, you get resumes in for a job, thousands of people can, and there's enough tools and abstractions and, and high level frameworks now, or just like anybody could go, you know, like anybody can train a regression model. Like it's, there's thousands and thousands of people I could find that do that. But the people who separate themselves are the ones who have an identity around it or have something I can see, I can ingest that there's a journey. There's like, there's an evolution in communication skill that I can actually see when I go look at their LinkedIn. It's not just like a blank page. There's actually like this whole lineage of this like data around what this person has done. So, and you can see how it's evolved and you can see that this person is low learning and growing and evolving. And that's the kind of person as a hiring, as someone who's been hiring is that's, that's the kind of person I want versus someone who can just code a model or like train a model that does X percentage accuracy on a data set. Like, far less interested in that and, and more interested in like, how do you differentiate yourself around those margins? Cause it is that last like 10, 15, 20% we've been talking about. And I think this is part of that. Um, there are other things as well, but this being a the significant part of that uh, lingering last few percentage points. No, I absolutely love that. And that, that directly hits on the part of the question that Joel was asking about, how do I become more employable? Like listen to everything that, that Austin just said, that is um, absolutely on point. Uh, there's another question you have in there, Joel, about um, learning Python. You're completely, uh, currently learning, you have no professional background in coding, but currently learning Python, uh, any advice would be great. So if you're, I'm not sure where on the spectrum you are of the Python learnings, but my favorite, absolute favorite resource that I've stumbled upon recently that I've been recommending to everyone is Python principles. It's uh, it's free. Uh, it should still be free. Um, but if it's not free, it's like a nominal cost, but here's what I like about it. It's really structured. The lessons just really gets you a super solid foundation and 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 lets you build a groundwork for learning more. Uh, everything's entirely web-based, so you write your code here. So you have like the problem statement here, you write your code here, you have your output there, and then it'll give you like little tips and stuff. And then on top of that, they have these challenges, which are really fun. Um, and these are great to help um, help build your problem-solving ability. Because these are essentially like word problems, like that, you know how you get math word problems in school? Right, like you know, train A leaves city B at ten miles per hour, and train you know X leaves city Y at this. You know, how long until they meet in the middle or whatever? Like you know, those type of word problems in math, like these types of uh, problems are the you know programming equivalent of that. So get a lot of reps in doing these, uh, and these are great because they'll just help you build your confidence um, before you get into the uh, to the interview mode. Um, but then after that, my favorite book for for learning python is particularly for pandas there's a the book by wes mckinney uh, python for data analysis he's the guy that um wrote the actual pandas package so no, no one else to, uh, no better person to, to write that book than him um any other tips on on learning python uh, either mark or eric i use DataQuest.io to teach myself python similar format it is paid but it was worth every single penny it got me up to speed I already knew R, so like I already knew a coding language, but it got me up to speed in Python in about a month. And speaking of like how do you get work experience, my first job out of grad school wasn't in a data role, it was an operations role. And th they use a lot of spreadsheets, Excel or Google Sheets to do a lot of their work manually. And so Python was a great avenue for me to automate all those processes. And so I got work experience by forcing myself to use Python to do those same tasks create scripts that took a 10 hour project into like 10 minutes. And I just started sharing it with all my colleagues because they want to save time too. 
And so now when people look at my operations role, they think it was some technical role when in reality, only 5% of it was actually using Python. So find those small, low-hanging opportunities at your current role if possible, um, where you can actually implement something, even if it's just for yourself, but just so you can practice it. Excellent. Excellent tips. Um, Eric, any any tips there for learning Python? Nope. Good. Probably everything everything good. Yes. Yeah. Covered awesome. it. Everything's been covered. Um, oh, so, one, one more yeah. thing. If, if you have an editor you're using, if, um, so if you're not using Jupyter Notebook, if you have an editor, download like a linting tool like Flake 8. Or, or or something along those lines because it'll force you to learn how to write better code. And I wish I did that earlier because I've had to unlearn all these bad habits. Yeah, building on that, something I wish, well, not I wish I would have done differently because I did it, like it wasn't around then, but like VS Code with like the Jupyter add-in or not Jupyter add-in or whatever, like VS Code is so awesome. I'm yeah. like so converted to, it, especially now that you can use Jupyter Notebooks in it too. It's just like, never mind, I just, I just work it all in the same location. So that's like my new favorite editor for sure. Yeah, VS Code is so nice, dude. So clean. Um, I was using PyCharm for a while, but VS Code is is definitely my absolute favorite. Uh, once I get more OG, I'm gonna go straight to Vim. That's when you know you're, that's when you know you're OG. Uh, but yeah, definitely use VS Code. Um, there's another question there about um, has anyone tried Kaggle's Python course? I haven't not tried uh, Kaggle's Python course, but uh, I know a lot of people. Uh, have been enjoying it. I've seen a lot of people posting about it, that they've been getting a lot of value from it and learning a lot. So that's probably a good avenue as well. Um, so definitely check that out if um, if, if you know, Python principles isn't your thing. I highly recommend checking that out. Um, awesome. And you know, I'm just going to do another self-plug if uh, if you guys don't mind. Because he's talking about being employable. Well, I happen to be launching a course called the Employable Data Scientist. So <laughs> check it out, guys. Um, so this is definitely a course that is not for beginning data scientists. So if you're new to data science, don't take my course because I'm not going to teach you the basics or the fundamentals. This is all about how to think like a data scientist. So how to do projects, how to think through projects, um, how to work like a data scientist, how to set yourself up uh, with project management skills, working in sprints, thinking like a scientist, uh, talking about the scientific method in particular as it relates to data science, how to come up with an analysis plan. Uh, how to think like an engineer. Uh, we talk about notebooks versus scripts, uh, the introduction to GitHub and, and Docker and stuff. And then um, how to think like a business person. And then, yeah, it's, uh, I try, try to do something completely different from what's already been done. So hopefully you enjoy this. Uh, in terms of, is it language agnostic for my course? Um, I guess so, because it's just teaching you how to think like a data scientist. Um, so I would say it is language agnostic. So look, look. Look for that in uh, early September. Should be launching it. We got a lot of recording to do this week and next week. Um, does not look like there are any other questions. I guess we can go ahead and wrap it up. Um, see questions coming in from anywhere. Awesome. All right, guys. We'll take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Uh, continue to follow 21 Days of Deep Learning. Uh, if you guys got questions or comments, definitely uh, post them right there. Um, you know, shout out to Nisha. She's uh, had a couple of really good questions. And the thing I like about those questions is that it, you know, if I don't know the answer to it, it makes me go and research it and learn it and uncovers things that I'm not understanding well or things that didn't explain well. Um, so if you guys are following along with 21 Days of Deep Learning, definitely, um, you know, let me know what your questions are, post them right there into the uh, comments. I'd really, really appreciate that. Um, I think after 21 Days of Deep Learning, I'll probably do uh, 21 Days of Papers for that. I think that would be fun, just dissecting 
a bunch of a uh, bunch of interesting research papers and just philosophy of data science philosophy of probability type of papers it'll be fun um guys thanks so much for hanging out be sure to tune into the podcast release an episode with jacqueline wales uh last week was jonathan tesser and a bunch of other awesome stuff uh Ante says that he's listened to all 165 episodes of the podcast yeah that's man, thank you thank you so much for listening to to all the episodes dude that's awesome man appreciate that i really appreciate that uh now everybody else go and listen to the the remaining 160 something episodes it, it'll only take you uh probably about 400 hours of time of your life but it's it's 400 hours well spent um if you listen for 40 hours a week uh you'll get done in 10 weeks hi guys take care shout out to matt bratton thank you so much for giving me the shirt man i really 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 appreciate it man um you know you didn't have to do that but thank you so much man i appreciate that uh matt bratton uh and we'll go ahead and and, and wrap it up guys and as usual my friends remember you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big here's everyone <laughs> <laughs>